Hello and welcome to a Mighty Blaze podcast. I'm your host, Trisha Blanchett. A Mighty Blaze was created in 2020 to connect readers and writers during the COVID pandemic and has since developed into an online hotspot for literary news, festival broadcasts, and interviews with best-selling authors, debut writers, and everyone in between. Today's featured guest always seems to find himself and his books on every best-selling list and every bookseller's front shelves from coast to coast. Chris Bojalian is the author of The Red Lotus, The Sleepwalker, and of course, The Flight Attendant, which you've probably spotted as a very bingeable adapted series on Netflix. His latest, The Hour of the Witch, takes us back to the days of America's earliest witch trials and touches upon topics of domestic violence and Me Too moments. It has been called unputdownable, insightful, and brilliant. In this episode, he talks to a Mighty Blaze co-founder, Caroline Levitt, about the history of witchcraft in Boston before Salem, the terrible table manners of the Puritans, and why strong, smart women have always been the target of those in power. So settle in and enjoy the conversation between two writers and friends as I pass the blaze torch to Caroline and her very special guest, Chris Bojalian. Hi, everybody. I'm Caroline Levin. I'm the co-founder of A Mighty Blaze, the initiative that helps authors, indie bookstores, and readers through the pandemic and beyond. And we have somebody really exciting today, a monumental Chris Bojellian. Um, I want to just tell you something personal about Chris first before I go into how amazing his book is. Chris is one of those writers who is so generous to other writers. I first met him I guess it must have been like in, I don't know, it was from my ninth novel when nobody really knew who I was. Pictures he, of you, 2011. <laughs> See, I told you. It's a um, great, fantastic novel. I mean, it's he, about a photographer and it's <laughs> the tape and there's the fog and my wife's a photographer and we both fell in love with it. I told you. He um, he allowed me to share his stage at Running Day Books with 500 people. Not only that, he went on first, and the first thing he did was he talked about my book. And because I was wearing cowboy boots then all the time, he wore bright yellow sneakers. So that's the kind of person he is. He's an his, Her boots are way cooler. <laughs> He's an extraordinary writer. Um, and his new book, The Hour of the Witch, is a Barnes & Noble book club pick for May, an indie next pick for May, a Read It Forward most anticipated book, a Lit Hub most anticipated book, a Crime Reads most anticipated book. And I want to read you just some of the amazing, amazing praise for this book. And I got to tell you, it's, it's like my favorite of all of his books, but I always say that every book of yours I read. Our, I could say is, that about you too, Carolyn. <laughs> This is from the Washington Post Book World. Hour of the Witch is historical fiction at its best, insightful and empathetic, 
thick with details as chowder is with clams, handled with great skill and delicacy. The book is a thriller in structure and a real page turner, the ending both unexpected and satisfying. We will talk about that ending. Here's something from Bookless, a starred review. Throughout Magellan's prolific career, he has rewarded readers with indelibly drawn female protagonists. And the formidable yet vulnerable Mary Deerfield is a worthy addition to the canon. Conjuring up specters of Me Too recriminations and social media shaming, there are 21st century parallels to Bajelian's atmospheric Puritan milieu and his society's worst impulses. Bajelian is a perennial favorite, that's true, and the Salem witch hunt drama has a drama, I mean, has a special magnetism. And so, okay, so let's talk about more about Chris. His 2018 novel, The Flight Attendant, which was a fabulous movie, so much fun, debuted as a New York Times, USA Today, Wall Street Journal, Publishers Weekly, and national indie bound bestseller. Um, oh, I lost my place. I'm so sorry. It was just reviewed for a second season. That's even better. His most recent novel, The Red Lotus, is a twisting story of love and deceit. They debuted as a national bestseller. Now you have to be really extraordinary to be able to do that. An American man vanishes on a rural road in Vietnam and his girlfriend, an emergency room doctor, trained to ask questions follows a path that leads her to the very hospital where they met. It's also in development for a TV series from the team that brought us a discovery of witches, Vikings, and Poles. The paperback is now on sale. And by the way, you should buy all of Chris's books. If you want to buy his latest signed, go to Vermont Bookshop. Really support the Indies. The special 25th anniversary of his 1995 magic realist novel about global climate, Water Witches, was published in 2020. He's, as if that's not enough, he's also a playwright and a screenwriter. His novel, Midwife's Great, Great Book, was adapted for a play which premiered January 21st, 2020. Uh, Broadway world set of it, fine playwriting, makes it unforgettable. His first play, Grounded, also premiered. His books have been chosen as best books of the year by the Washington Post, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, the Hartford Current, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, Sentinel Publishers Weekly, Library Journal. Okay, we, done, we know who I am. Got a dog <laughs> There's pages and pages of this. He's got, I have to just tell you some of his awards. He's very modest, but you said plenty about me. I'm so okay. He's, a, cool. he's an award winner. We will just say that. He's an award there winner, and he's also incredibly, extraordinarily modest. So let's talk about the novel, which is about Mary, a young Puritan woman. She's faithful, resourceful, totally of her time, but she's also somewhat beyond her time, even part of our times. She's afraid of the demons that dog her soul. Um, and she's plotting her escape from an abusive husband to Thomas. What I didn't realize is that people could be divorced back then. I thought divorce just happened in the 1950s as a new thing. So I always want to know the origin story of any novel, like what was haunting you. So please tell us what was haunting you with this one. I've been fascinated by Puritan theology since college. Imagine living in a world where Satan is as real as your neighbor. Imagine living in a world where you are constantly wondering, am I saved? 
or am I damned? Now, whenever we think of witches in America, we go right to Salem, 1692. But 30 years before Salem, in 1662, Hartford was hanging witches. In 1656, the governor of Massachusetts had his own sister-in-law hanged as a witch. Oh my God. So I was looking for a way in that wasn't necessarily Salem. And I came across an obscure three-line reference in Boston's Court of Assistants. In 1672, Elizabeth Nanny Naylor successfully sued her husband for divorce on the grounds of cruelty, what today we would call domestic violence. And Carolyn, just like you, when I thought of the Puritans, I didn't go first to divorce. But when I went down the rabbit hole, I learned that 31 times couples divorced in 17th century Boston. There were five reasons you could divorce. Polygamy, desertion, adultery, and, and you will love this when you think of the Puritans, impotence, oh. one time, one time, cruelty. Wow. And that was my way in. Imagine being a woman so courageous, knowing how toxic her marriage is, that she goes before Boston's 14-person all-male court of assistance and pleads for divorce, knowing how high the stakes are and how easy it would be for this to devolve into a witch trial. That's and I was right. off and running. I mean, Hour of the Witch is one novel, you know, in two parts. But I called the two parts the Book of the Wife and the Book of the Witch. Yeah, and that's a that's a brilliant bit of structure because it's what I love so much is in writing you're always trying to ramp up the conflict and the drama. And the first part you think this poor woman she has it so bad she has to leave her husband she's being cruelly treated he'll probably kill her and then as soon as she decides that you think oh okay now we're going to see that spread of the story but it doesn't you veer it into new territory i mean I, I told you before this interview that i thought i was getting whiplash because i kept reading and reading and reading and all of a sudden they can't get her on that so they say well you must be a witch and yes. it escalates into that it, it was just extraordinary extraordinary i mean i mean you know we have twitter the puritans had the stocks right and the Whipping post and of course the gallows. You know, it's one of the other things I learned about the Puritans that surprised the heck out of me. They had the most atrocious table manners. Really? And that would become instrumental in the novel. Yeah, first of all, they drank beer like it's spring break in Miami. Oh. Secondly, they did have plates, but only for formal occasions. Oh they my usually God. used these big long, Trenchers. Yeah, she talks like about a pig's that. trough. And they didn't <laughs> use forks because they <laughs> thought the fork looked too much like the devil's pitchfork or the devil's tines. So basically, you've got a whole bunch of drunk Puritans 
not using forks, eating <laughs> out of trenchers. It must have been just madness. Let's talk about that madness a little bit. I mean, the whole time that I was reading this, what made me so glued to the page was that first I thought about the crucible. Then I was thinking about Handmaid's Tale. And by oh, the way, perfect. Margaret, Margaret Atwood has said that everything in Handmaid's Tale has happened in history already. She did not make anything up. And also the whole Me Too era. Um, and so much of this has to do with fear of women and fear of sexuality. The interesting thing about Mary is she considers, she has a secret, which is that she self-pleasures herself and she considers that a gift from God. She doesn't see anything wrong with that, nor does she see anything wrong with her desires. So I wanted to know if you have any thoughts about it seems like men have always been afraid of women in these cultures, even when they hold the power. I mean, Mary has no power, and yet her husband is clearly worried about her and afraid of her. Do you, do you have any thoughts about why that's continued into today and why modern politicians and certain groups of politicized yeah. people still feel that women are a threat, even as they're continually denying us all rights and equal pay and everything else? I think you're on to three things that are so smart and so spot on. In the 17th century, if you wanted to be hanged, be smart, strong, opinionated and female. Um, when we think of witches, there are two tropes. There's the old woman living alone right. in the woods. And then there's the young, beautiful, sexualized vixen. Right. Those are the tropes. Right. And they both scare the living hell out of men, whether it's um, the Wicked Witch of the West or right. Samantha Stevens. Right, that's right. So when I was, I mean, one of my favorite books I, wrote, I read when I was researching this was Carol Carlson's The Devil in the Shape of a Woman. And I mean, isn't it interesting when some GOP leaders in Michigan wanted to demonize the governor of Michigan two weeks ago, what did they call her? A witch. witch. That's the no. way you degrade. I mean, Anne Hutchinson was never hanged, but she was exiled. She was smart, strong, opinionated. Those women in Hartford, Anne Hibbins, the women in Salem, they were the women who basically said to the men, yeah, you're out of your mind. I'm not going to put up with that. And I must admit, I was writing a lot of this novel during the Brett Kavanaugh Supreme Court oh, hearings. I mean, oh. I mean, I could have called it hashtag I believe her. And, yeah. And the third yeah. thing I want to say, um, because you're onto something really interesting when you talk about Mary and her quote unquote secret. Yeah. Yeah. Is, she's is, is as uptight and as stodgy as we view the Puritans, America's first poet was Anne Bradstreet. And her poetry is so beautiful. She, along with 
Emily Dickinson and Mary Oliver are my muses. And her poems are about the death of a grandchild, the demise of her library, her questions about faith, and her deep, passionate love for her husband. I mentioned earlier that one of those 31 divorces was for impotence. The fact is, the Puritans, for all of their weirdness, for all of the horrors they have inflicted upon all of us today. I mean, we are still scarred yeah. by the Calvinist worth ethic. I mean, you know, they are responsible for the genocide of the indigenous people of North America. Right. But they did expect married couples to have what we would consider normal conjugal relations. That's right. It's it's interesting because um, I was doing some research for a book on the Hasidic communities, and one of their beliefs is that a husband must satisfy his wife, and yet all the rules go exactly against this. Nobody knows anything about sex <laughs> until they're married. Some of them are given a little booklet. That, that is so which has, Oh my you know, gosh! Which is like you know. What's going on here? What's going, it's sort of like also there's the whole idea of, you know, God is not creating man in his image here as much as man is creating God in their image, where God becomes this punishing man who is, you know, looking down at everybody, particularly the women. And I just found this so interesting and so current. You know, I, I, you know, there's a difference. You must know there's a difference between setting and story world. Setting is just like where something takes place. Story world is creating this whole world. And you did this so indelibly that um, it was hypnotic because I really felt like I was in that world and it was so vivid right down to every detail, what they were eating. When she doesn't serve Thomas dinner on a plate, but he says it's in a trial when he gets all angry. And you could just smell the air and the earth and everything. So I wanted to ask you, I wanted to talk about structure because you also said something really interesting that I loved. And I forget where you said it, but you were talking about how you don't write books the way you used to. That maybe in the past you could be more leisurely and lead readers by the hand into the story. And now you don't do that anymore. And either does any writer really. Now we have um, to I'm gonna let, I'm gonna let, I'm gonna let my dog out because clearly oh, my dog okay. is very Go ahead. One second. Go ahead. So anyway, what I'm going to ask Chris is about his structure, because his storytelling in this novel is just, you have to pick it up and you have to read it because you'll be turning pages just the way I was. It's just the blog. Okay, so- Don't you, you, said, don't you love don't you love Facebook Live and YouTube? <laughs> you know, that doesn't happen on the Today Show where I let my dog out. <laughs> Well, that's good. That's that's all that stuff is always welcome. Children, dogs, whatever. So I wanted to talk about how did the how did that new way of writing come about for you? Where you decide, yeah. okay, we've got to be tighter narrative drive now. TV. Oh, um, I. It's interesting. Realized that streaming television, The Sopranos, right. The Wire, Mad Men. Right. A couple of things. They all are about dread, and they all instantly immerse us in this world 
right. and have us wanting to binge. You know, I mean, the flight attendant is a magnificent TV series. Steve Yawkey, Kaylee Cuoco, what they created, I'm just so proud of them. Yeah, but it's you binge world. it. You binge it. And I believe that that affects how we read books. And so it affects how I write books. You mentioned earlier my my 25th anniversary edition of Water Witches, my novel about global climate change. That book was first published in 1925, and it's a really leisurely book. You sort of tiptoe into it. Right. I don't right. write books like that anymore. Right. Now, because of streaming television, I want my readers invested from page one. So, I mean, you know, the very first sentence of Hour of the Witch is, it was always possible that the devil was present. That's chapter a great one begins. Thing. That's right. One That's be right. Thank you. Chapter one begins with Mary Deerfield trying to hide her bruises beneath her quaff That's before right. church. You're right, right. This is really the golden age of streaming. There's so much I've been noticing. There's so many really fine, fine shows streaming on TV. They're, the writing is top-notch. The story just grabs you. It's, you're moved by it. And all of that is changing. So, you know, and it's great that it does because you want that. You have, I have a friend who writes about writing in terms of what happens with your brain, neurology. And her thing is that we're wired to love that stuff. And she's right. We are. That first sentence was so perfect and just so, so great. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about the other. I was going to ask about Mary, but I want to talk about the other first. There's a lot of the other in this book, which is also present today. There's uh, the Quaker who is flogged publicly. There are the um, Native Americans who they call Indians in the book, of course, who are the other and not to be around. There's so much of sense of you're either with us or you're against us. And I'm sorry, I feel like that's exactly like the political situation we have had and to many extents we still have, that sense of the other. And to me, that made the book transcendent because it's not just about a particular period in history, it's about now too. Can you speak about that? I can. That okay. is by design. Thank you, Carolyn, for noticing that. The novel is set in 1662, but um, it's timely. And it is timely by design. When one of the men on Boston's court of assistance hisses at Mary, you are a nasty woman. The reference won't be lost. When Mary is alone with Thomas, her husband, and is challenging his worst impulses. And he responds to her, you know what society thinks. You know society is on my side, not yours. You're a woman. It will resonate today. It definitely does. It definitely does. I so much of it actually inspired me to, you know, give more money to politicians who I want to be in office or stay in office. And I think that's what it's meant to do to realize that, you know what, this has been here all along. And then for a time, we thought it wasn't there maybe in the 60s and 70s. And now it's come back. 
And we have to claim our power and we have to be willing to be the other and to be proud of being the other. Um, so I wanted to talk about Mary again. She's remarkable. She was remarkable to me because as I've said, she wasn't just of her time, she's beyond her time. She's very much a Puritan, but she's also thinking beyond that. And she knows there's a great cost to what she's doing. She can be hanged as a witch, she can be driven out, she can be killed. And yet I don't want to give away the ending except to say that the ending is totally unexpected and yet totally right. So I wanted to know in terms of how you write, did you know that was going to be the ending all the, at the time? I never know where oh, my Oh, I'm so glad you said that. You never knew? Okay. I, I never know my endings. I begin with a really vague premise. Alcoholic, hot mess of a flight attendant, wakes up in bed next to a guy she picked up, and he's dead. A young Puritan woman is in a toxic marriage, and in her attempts to escape it, winds up being accused of being a witch. That's all I know. Then I depend on my characters to take me by the hand and lead me through the dark of the story. So I'm usually maybe two-thirds, three-quarters of the way into a book when it's starting to tell me, we're done. You're not Tolstoy. You're not Hugo. You're not Donna Tart. No one needs a thousand-page book by you. Wind it down. And I get out three big whiteboards and three dry erase markers. I love this. Black, red, and blue. And I start plotting it out. If this happens to this character, what happens to this character? Oh, that's interesting. If I do X, what's Y? And you said something so brilliantly Aristotelian a moment ago. You said the ending was satisfying and a surprise. Yeah, that's what you want. That's really that's hard to want. do. But that's what Aristotle said is the perfect ending. And and you know this, you know, I mean, with or without you, pictures of you, all your books, if you don't stick the ending, right? it's like a beautiful gymnast floor routine and he or she is great for two minutes and 55 seconds. And then he or she doesn't stick the landing. Right. And, and it's, it's a fail. It's You've got to get the ending right. And some of my book endings are train wrecks. You know, I also want to talk about in terms of ending, there's something called that I call the never ending story, which is when you close the book, you wonder about the characters and everything's not like all tied up in a bow. And I wondered about, I don't want to give anything away, but I was wondering with future generations of Mary, you know, would they have her fiery spirit? Would they be instrumental in more change? What do you think? Well, you know, um, one of my favorite writers is Alice Hoffman. And her most recent novel, Magic Lessons, is the prequel to Practical Magic and Rules of Magic. And it's set in the 17th century. And it's the ancestor to the Owen sisters. So is there ever going to be a descendant of Mary Deerfield? I've never written a sequel or a prequel, but never say never. 
You never know. Right. Oh, I would love that. That would okay. I have one last question for Chris, and then we'll take audience questions. Um, I hope this question is not going to embarrass you, but I want to talk about what a genuinely good person you are. I mean, you're so you're you're so kind, and you're you're so supportive of your wife and of your daughter and of women in general. So I want to talk about fame. You're so freaking famous, and yet you're so down to earth, and your sense of gratitude is enormous. I want to know, where did that come from? Because there are a lot of famous writers who are insufferable. I mean, they can be insufferable, um, and they feel as though it's deserved. But you just seem continually grateful for where you are and wanting to help others. Were you raised with that kind of sensibility? Um, I had great parents, but I was the world's most despicable human being growing up. I was a terrible human being as a young adult. I was just horrible. I mean, I spent my life thinking about the kind of human being I was as a boy and as a young adult and thinking, how in the world did Victoria Blue ever fall in love with me? I mean, I've been with the same woman since I was 18 wow. years old. And she's read every word I've written. And my daughter has read every word I've written since she was in eighth or ninth grade. And between the two of them and my great editor, Jenny Jackson, somehow we get the books out there. But um, I am grateful. It wasn't all that long ago that my books sold briskly, but only among people with my last name. <laughs> and I, I try never to lose sight of that fact. <laughs> That's I mean, an amazing I mean, okay, story. Okay, here's, here's, here's the kind of, I'm going to tell you one thing about, I don't know if I've ever told anyone this. On the cover of The Law of Similars, the hardcover, is a photograph my wife took. It's of our house where we used to live in Lincoln, Vermont, and the church next door. And I'm doing an event in Minneapolis. And I tell the audience, so this is my house on the cover, and this is my church. And I'm currently the Sunday school superintendent. And before that, I was a deacon. And when I'm signing books afterwards, there's a woman I went to college with, and she can't stop laughing. And she says, oh, my God, you are a Sunday school superintendent. You used to be a deacon. I mean, when I was, when I was in college, I will never forget when the head of the Christian church group tried to recruit me. And I said, sure, explain Auschwitz to me and I'll join. Oh my Explain God. the Armenian genocide to me, and I'm there. Now, this past Sunday, I had a deeply confessional essay in the Daily Beast about my faith and everything from the time my father and I stole a Men at Work road sign to decorate my high school bedroom. My dad and I stole the men at work sign um, to 
drinking in college like a Puritan um, to where I am today. Wow. You know, you created yourself much as you would have created a plot or a book in a way, and with the same kind of truth running through it. Tom, do we have questions for Chris? What would 2021 Chris tell 1995 Chris about writing, publishing, and your career? Okay, the first thing I would tell him is, it's gonna be okay. Be mindful. You are all striving mind. Give yourself a break once in a while and be acceptance mind. Number two, people don't love you because you've written a book. People love you because you try like hell to be a decent dad and That's a right. decent husband. And if you die today, you're sure as hell not gonna put on your tombstone, sold a boatload of books. It's gonna be, tried to be a dad who is decent tried to be a husband who is decent. And three, there's this thing called, coming called the internet and duck because everything's going to change and it's gonna get really weird and there's gonna be this really creepy president who's <laughs> going to just use it in all the ways it was never meant to yes. be used. So take a breath. <laughs> Okay, you have moved around in time periods in your books. Is there one period you're drawn to most? Yes. I am drawn to every period that isn't 2016 to 2020. Oh, good answer. Good answer. I mean, that's just, I mean, I think my favorite books I've written have some of them set in the present. I had a great time writing The Flight Attendant an international thriller set in the present. I had a great time writing Hour of the Witch set in 1662. I loved writing The Sandcastle Girls about the Armenian Genocide as a grandson of two survivors of the Armenian Genocide. I mean, so long as I'm writing, I'm, I'm, I'm happy. Okay. Another question. Oh, which of your characters had stayed with you or that you still think about? I, bet you're I think a lot about Mary Deerfield in Hour of the Witch. I think a lot about in a book, a book called Close Your Eyes, Hold Hands, Emily Shepard. Um, I think a lot about Uri and Rebecca in Skeletons at the Feast. And of course, I think a lot about Cassie Bowden in The Flight Attendant. Right. These are all really courageous, flawed, people who I love madly. Do you ever reread your books and think, oh, I should have done that differently? Or do you reread them and think, wow, who wrote that? <laughs> um, I have to reread them often because of TV. I mean, I've got four TV series, not even counting The Flight Attendant, which is, you know, all in Steve Yawkey's capable hands. But, you know, I've got four other books in development. So I've had wow. to reread them because two of them I'm, I'm writing on them. And usually I think to myself, yep, could have done that better. Could have done that better. That's so interesting. I mean, Do you lo I, lo I love books that give me an inferiority complex. Like, you know, Ayat Akhtar's Homeland Elegies. I mean, someday I hope I write a sentence that has two words together, 
optic concordances. Do we have another question, Todd? What do you think Mary would be like living in today's world? Oh, that's a great question. I was thinking of her descendants, but what would Mary be like? What would a young 24, well, 24 wasn't young to the Puritans, but you know, it's, what would a 24-year-old Puritan woman, literate, devout, but smart, strong, and opinionated, be like in 2021. ACL, part of the squad, maybe somebody making the world a, a better place and standing up to the patriarchy. I think she'd go to Manhattan. <laughs> there you go. I think she'd go to New York City and just have her eyes wide open. And she might. She, wait a minute. She's Anne Hathaway in The Devil Wears Prada. Oh, that's right. <laughs> that's who she is. Mary Deerfield, Anne Hathaway, and the Devil Wears Prada. <laughs> but she's going to leave that life, and she's going to go make applesauce in Vermont or someplace and run her own business and just be her own women, and all the young women, younger women will come to her for advice, I bet. Or she's going to become Maggie Haberman and write for the New York Times. <laughs> what motivates you to write female main characters, and who inspires you to get them right? Um, I write a lot about women because, well, Carolyn, your gender is way more interesting than my gender. Um, secondly, my books are about injustice. And, you know, look at me. I'm the definition of privilege. I mean, so if you want to write about injustice, let's not write about me. And I've got at least three women in my life who make me smarter because they're smarter than I am. My That's wife, wonderful. Victoria, my daughter, Grace, and my editor, Jenny Jackson. So long as I've got the three of them, I think it's safe that um, I will write books that have a better chance of working than not. Okay. We have time for one last question. I'm rereading, this is from Sharon Long. I'm rereading Midwives and I'm struck about you writing as the voice of a daughter. How were you able to write so effectively as a teenager, da teenage daughter with the emotions, etc.? Thank you. Thank you, Sharon. And the same could be true about, you know, Mary Deerfield or um, Laura Petrosian um, or Cassie Bowden. Um, I begin with the universals. What links us as human beings. And then I start layering in the gender specificities. What makes us different? And you know, gender is a spectrum. Right. It's, it's, it's a continuum. Um, and I try never to lose sight of that. And you know, I shared this, I think last night for the first time in public, but I'll share it again now. When my father was dying in 2011, he lived in Florida. You know, I was flying there every three weeks to take care of him, check in, see what was going on. And at one of those visits, my aunt, his sister pulled me aside and said, God, thank goodness Chris 
you're the daughter my brother never had. Wow. Wow. That's profound. That's wonderful and strange. And wow. Yeah, someone had to check in on him. And That's usually like that falls to women. Values. Yeah. Yeah. I want to thank everyone for coming to this most amazing, very special interview. And I want to thank Chris for such an extraordinary book. Oh my God. Everyone, please, there are signed copies at the Vermont Bookshop. Buy all of Chris's books. Um, buy everyone's books. You can get them signed, Vermont Bookshop. Um, I will be there to, tomorrow signing He'll books. be there tomorrow. That's great. So you can go and get to meet him. Uh, thank you so much, Chris, for joining us today. Mm -hmm. I just, uh, one of my favorite writers and one of my favorite people, uh, you are the real thing. And that is, that is the highest compliment I can give anyone. Well, and I want to give it Carolyn, to Carolyn, I want to thank you. Right back at you, Carolyn. First of all, everyone pick up With or Without You. It is utterly fantastic. <laughs> Um, I've got a special affection for, you know, inside joke between Carolyn and me, the very first page. Um, and yes, well, I can't believe but, you know that. I can't believe um, I took that from you. No, yeah. but it's great. Anyway, buy Carolyn's books, <laughs> all of them, pictures of you with or without you, buy Jenna Blum's books, buy everyone's books. books. Everyone's Thank you books. so much. Thank you, Almighty Blaze. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for joining us. I'm Trisha Blanchett for a Mighty Blaze podcast. My debut novel, Herrick's End, is due out on May 10th, 2022, which also happens to be the release date of Chris's upcoming book, The Lioness. Tune in next week for the season four finale featuring Jennifer Weiner. Until then, keep your blaze burning and your pages turning. Thank you.